0: Letter 5 of Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Moser. Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania by John Dickinson. Letter V. BELOVED COUNTRYMEN Perhaps the objection to the late Act, imposing duties upon paper, etc., might have been safely rested on the arguments drawn from the universal conduct of Parliaments and Ministers, from the first existence of these colonies to the administration of Mr. Grenville. What but the indisputable the acknowledged executive right of the colonies to tax themselves could be the reason that in this long period of more than one hundred and fifty years no statute was ever passed for the sole purpose of raising a revenue on the colonies and how clear how cogent must that reason be to which every parliament and every minister FOR SO LONG A TIME SUBMITTED, WITHOUT A SINGLE ATTEMPT TO INNOVATE. ENGLAND IN PART OF THAT COURSE OF YEARS, AND GREAT BRITAIN IN OTHER PARTS, WAS ENGAGED IN FIERCE AND EXPENSIVE WARS, TROUBLED WITH SOME TUMULTUOUS AND BOLD PARLIAMENTS, GOVERNED BY MANY DARING AND WICKED MINISTERS. YET NONE OF THEM EVER VENTURED to touch the palladium of American liberty. Ambition, avarice, faction, tyranny, all revered it. Whenever it was necessary to raise money on the colonies, the requisitions of the Crown were made, and dutifully complied with. The Parliament, from time to time, regulated their trade, and that of the rest of the Empire to preserve their dependencies, and the connexion of the whole in good order. The people of Great Britain, in support of their privileges, boast much of their antiquity. Yet it may well be questioned, if there is a single privilege of the British subject, supported by longer, more solemn, or more uninterrupted testimony, than the exclusive right of taxation in these colonies. The people of Great Britain consider that Kingdom as the Sovereign of these colonies, and would now annex to that Sovereignty a prerogative never heard of before. How would they bear this? Was the case their own? What would they think of a new prerogative, claimed by the Crown? We may guess what their conduct would be, from the transports of passions into which they fell about the late embargo, laid to remove the most emergent necessities of State, admitting of no delay, and for which there were numerous precedents. Let our liberties be treated with the same tenderness, and it is all we desire. Explicit as the conduct of parliaments for so many ages, is, to prove that no money can be levied on these colonies, by Parliament, for the purpose of raising a revenue. Yet it is not the only evidence in our favour. Every one of the most material arguments against the legality of the Stamp Act, operates with equal force against the Act now objected to. But as they are well known, it seems unnecessary to repeat them here. This general one only shall be considered at present. That, though these colonies are dependent on Great Britain, and though she has a legal power to make laws for preserving that dependence, yet it is not necessary for this purpose, nor essential to the relation between a mother country and her colonies, as was eagerly contented by the advocates for the stamp act that she should raise money upon them without their consent colonies were formerly planted by warlike nations to keep their enemies in awe to relieve their country overburdened with inhabitants or to discharge a number of discontented and troublesome citizens but in more modern ages the spirit of violence being in some measure, if the expression may be allowed, sheathed in commerce, colonies have been settled by the nations of Europe for the purposes of trade. These purposes were to be attained by the colonies raising for their mother country those things which she did not produce herself, and by supplying themselves from her with things they wanted. These were the national objects in the commencement of our colonies, and have been uniformly so in their promotion. To answer these grand purposes, perfect liberty was known to be necessary, all history proving that trade and freedom are nearly related to each other. By a due regard to this wise and just plan, the infant colonies exposed in the unknown climates and unexplored wildernesses of this new world, lived, grew, and flourished. The parent country, with undeviating prudence and virtue, attentive to the first principles of colonization, drew to herself the benefits she might reasonably expect, and preserved to her children the blessings on which those benefits were founded. She made laws obliging her colonies to carry to her all of those products which she wanted for her own use, and all those raw materials which she chose herself to work up. Besides this restriction, she forbade them to procure manufactures from any other part of the globe, or even the products of European countries, which alone could rival her, without being first brought to her. In short, by a variety of laws, she regulated their trade in such a manner as she thought most conducive to their mutual advantage and her own welfare. A power was reserved to the crown of repealing any laws that should be enacted. THE EXECUTIVE AUTHORITY OF GOVERNMENT was all lodged in the crown and its representatives. And an appeal was secured to the crown from all judgments in the administration of justice. For all these powers established by the mother country over the colonies, for all these immense emoluments derived by her from them, for all their difficulties, and distresses in fixing themselves what was the recompense made them a communication of her rights in general and particularly of that great one the foundation of all the rest that their property acquired with so much pain and hazard should not be disposed of by any one but themselves or to use the beautiful and emphatic language of the sacred scriptures that they should fit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none should make them afraid. Can any man of candor and knowledge deny that these institutions form an affinity between Great Britain and her colonies, that sufficiently secures their dependence upon her? Or that for her to levy taxes upon them is to reverse the nature of things, or that she can pursue such a measure without reducing them to a state of vassalage? If any person cannot conceive the supremacy of Great Britain to exist without the power of laying taxes to levy money upon us, the history of the colonies and of Great Britain since their settlement will prove the contrary. HE WILL THERE FIND THE AMAZING ADVANTAGES ARISING TO HER FROM THEM, THE CONSTANT EXERCISE OF HER SUPREMACY, AND THEIR FILIAL SUBMISSION TO IT, WITHOUT A SINGLE REBELLION, OR EVEN THE THOUGHT OF ONE, FROM THE FIRST emigration TO THIS MOMENT, AND ALL THESE THINGS HAVE HAPPENED WITHOUT AN INSTANCE OF GREAT BRITAIN LAYING TAXES TO LEVY MONEY UPON THEM. How many British Authors have remonstrated that the present wealth, power, and glory of their country are founded on these colonies? As constantly as streams tend to the ocean, have they been pouring the fruits of all their labours into their mother's lap. GOOD HEAVEN! And shall a total oblivion of former tenderness and blessings be spread over the minds of a wise people, by the sordid acts of intriguing men, who, covering their selfish projects under pretences of public good, first enrage their countrymen into a frenzy of passion, and then advance their own influence and interest, by gratifying that passion, which they themselves have barely excited? Hitherto, Great Britain has been contented with her prosperity. Moderation has been the rule of her conduct. But now, a generous and humane people that so often has protected the liberty of strangers is inflamed into an attempt to tear a privilege from her own children, which, if executed, must, in their opinion, sink them into slaves. And for what? For a pernicious power, not necessary to her, as her own experience may convince her, but horribly dreadful and detestable to them. It seems extremely probable that when cool, dispassionate posterity shall consider the affectionate intercourse, the reciprocal benefits, and the unsuspecting confidence that have subsisted between these colonies and their parent country. For such a length of time, they will execrate with the bitterest curses the infamous memory of those men, whose pestilential ambition, unnecessarily, wantonly, first opened the sources of civil discord between them, first turned their love into jealousy, and first Taught these provinces, filled with grief and anxiety, to inquire. Mens ubi materna est? Where is maternal affection? A. Farmer End of Letter 5